Welcome to Holistic Happy Hour, a safe place to learn, grow, and chat all things health and wellness. This episode is part of our two-part series with Morley Robbins. If you missed the first episode, be sure to go back and check it out. Morley's research is incredibly scientific and can at sometimes be difficult to comprehend, so we recommend taking notes throughout the episode. For our listeners who've ever taken vitamin C or D supplements or have been on Accutane or Tretinoin, be prepared to have your mind blown. In this episode, we cover the best form of vitamin C to take and why ascorbic acid isn't it, why so many people are deficient in vitamin D and what you can do about it, the dark side of synthetic vitamin A, which can be found in tretinoin or Accutane, and how labeling can actually hold you back from healing. And a quick note before we jump into the episode, if you're listening right now, thank you. If you would like to become a part of our Holistic Happy Hour gang, hit that subscribe button and connect with us on social media. You can find us on Instagram at Holistic Happy Hour Pod underscore or on TikTok at Holistic Happy Hour Pod. And if you feel like you have a little extra love to give, feel free to write us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. That would mean so much to us. Cheers to a happier, healthier you and enjoy the episode. Welcome back, Morley. Well, thank you. Glad to be here. Looking forward to it. I wanted to start off by talking about low and slow, and that's something we touched on briefly in our last episode. And I wanted to kind of give people a better idea of what that looks like. And maybe that's type A of me needing (laughs) a very laid out example. But I think that being somebody, like we said, who's kind of struggled their entire lives feeling off, I I jump on things too much. And then it has the reverse effect. So can you give me just like a maybe an example of what low and slow looks like? Is that starting something once a week? Is that giving something a few weeks to, to kick in? What does that look like? Most people who've been chronically ill for any length of time, when, they're, when they come across a protocol that they hear about, that, oh gosh, this seems like this is gonna work, they wanna get well yesterday. And they'll dive in and they'll do too much too fast. So the part of the challenge we've got with the RCP is we're threading a needle around the world. And we don't, a lot of the work we do is online, as you can imagine. We take a very conservative approach that the body responds to stimulus and better to use a feather than a sledgehammer. Now, a lot of practitioners are in a hurry and they like to take control. And so they will very often bring on too much too fast. I I think there's just a, a, a downside to that approach. So when we're asking people to change their diet, we take take baby steps. You know, it's actually easier to get people to change their religion than to change their diet. You probably know that. And so it's, it's, you've got to be very measured and very disciplined about getting the, the change that you want. When it comes to the supplements, we have stops, and then we have three phases of starts. And the phases are for a reason, to purposely slow people down. And there's still people that will just jump in and do it, do it all. But uh, for the most part, people find benefit in easing into the supplement, easing into if, if it requires two or three, as you, as you indicated, Jamie, starting with one and seeing how they feel for a week or maybe two weeks, and then going to a second and then see how they feel. We just encourage people to ease into it 
because it took a good long while to get out of balance. And it doesn't take the same amount of time to get back into balance. It's probably going to take a month for every year you've been out of balance. That's a good rule of thumb. A lot of people use that. And I think there's legitimacy to it. So if you've been wonky for you know several years, five years, six, seven years, it's going to take you half a year or more to really allow your body the grace and good rhythm to get back into, um, into balance. Yeah, that's helpful. And something else I wanted to bring up just because we're catching up. Since we had our first conversation, I've had four people in my life tell me that they're anemic or diagnosed anemic. And every time they tell me, and I'm not going to to press my views on anybody else because I don't think that's a good approach, but I, I can't wait till I have this episode so that I can you know share your thoughts just because I'm like, there's another one. There's another one. Oh, you're anemic too. And you have chronic health issues. That's weird. So there's two forms of iron deficiency. According to the World Health Organization, it's the number one nutrient deficiency uh, in humans. The number one nutrient deficiency on the farm for 80 years has been copper, which would explain why iron is not working right in humans, but I digress. But iron deficiency, according to the World Health Organization, is our greatest challenge. And we should be smart enough now post-COVID to know that they're just pulling our leg. So the most important thing for people to learn is don't assume that if iron is low in a blood test, that it's low in the tissue. Because usually when iron is low in the blood test, iron is very high in the tissue. The problem is the blood work doesn't reflect that. That concept of low iron in the blood work versus high iron in the tissue comes by way of Bruce Ames, who's a world-renowned scientist. At the peak of his career, he was the most quoted scientist on planet Earth. And he did a study with David Kalilia, one of his long-standing partners, uh, in 2004, and proved that, that iron in the tissue can be 10 times higher than iron in the blood. That's a big difference. That's difficult to test, though, correct? I remember reading in your book that it's pretty... It is difficult. You, you would have to do a needle biopsy of the liver, or you could do an MRI of the liver as well. So the needle biopsy is painful, and the uh, MRI is expensive. And actually, I think the MRIs are down into the several hundred dollar range. The, the two forms of iron deficiency are absolute iron deficiency and functional iron deficiency. Absolute is what it sounds like. There's just no iron in the blood or the tissue. Um, and that's a very rare situation. I would contend it's, it's almost impossible to attain that unless someone is in a serious accident and had massive hemorrhaging. That would be the basis for absolute iron deficiency. The relative deficiency is going back to the iron recycling program. And again, that's how the iron starts to build in the tissue is if the iron, again, every second of every day, our recycling macrophages have to turn over two and a half million red blood cells a second, every second. Whereas most of this taking place in the spleen, very important organ called the hidden organ. Nobody knows about the spleen. It's over here on the left side, liver's on the right side. 
And it turns out there's a spleen-brain axis. Very few people know about that. So if the spleen starts to get wobbly, it's going to affect neural function and immune function. And that's the topic for another conversation. The relative deficiency is a result of the, there's a little doorway in the back of the, re, of the recycling macrophages called ferroportin, iron doorway, ferro-iron-portin doorway. And that iron doorway is naturally regulated by bioavailable copper. And when bioavailable copper is present, the doorway knows under what conditions to release iron so that it can get attached to transferrin to go back to the bone marrow to be turned into two and a half million new red blood cells a second. So we got, they're coming offline in the spleen, they're being remade in the bone marrow, and it's a, I'm sure it's a sight to behold. Uh, think about the, the dynamic of our, our body and uh, moving that kind of uh, activity. And so when blood work is done, all the optics are on that low iron level and they, they draw a conclusion, you must be deficient with no consideration to what's happening in the tissue. And I think it's important for your listeners to, to ask better questions and say, doctor, is there a chance that maybe my iron is stuck in my recycling macrophages? Now that's a big word, big phrase to say. Just say, it, could it be that my iron is stuck in my recycling system, the RES? Most practitioners will know about the RES, but they've never really applied it in their practice. And the RES is totally dependent on the general copper to open up that doorway. And it turns out that the synthesis of heme, the knitting together of the hemes to become hemoglobin, heme and globin, coming together to make hemoglobin, and then this whole process of maturing the red blood cells so they can become functional, all of that activity requires copper. Now, it's, it's, it's well laid out in the literature. It's not presented that way in the classroom. Everything in the classroom is that when the iron looks low on the blood, you need to give them iron. And to me, it's the most regressive and uh, just really ignorant response to low markers that the, the part that the practitioners don't understand is that there's a difference between a gas tank and miles per gallon. And when they see a low iron in the blood work, they're thinking gas tank. They're not thinking miles per gallon, that there's a variable that's gotten in the way that's causing the number to look low because you can fill a car full of gas that has low miles per gallon and you're not going to change the, the miles per gallon at all. You're going to have to start to give it a tune-up. You're going to have to change the air, air pressure. You're going to have to change. You're going to have to change a lot of things to really bring the uh, miles per gallon into conformance with the with the factory settings. But adding more gas is not one of them. And so that's the mistake that I think is routinely made as it relates to anemia, is not understanding. And the the other point that I would add. All too often, and this is probably happening to people that you know, practitioners are basing their decisions on a ferritin blood test, and they're not looking at the hemoglobin, 
the serum iron, and the ferritin. And the ferritin is misleading. Uh, I've renamed it erotin because there's so many mistakes made um, with that as a sole marker for iron status. If someone gets into a situation and the doctor says, I think you're anemic, say, what marker are you basing it on? And have you done all three markers? Have you looked at hemoglobin? Have you looked at serum iron? And have you looked at ferritin? Because I know that all three are important. And I guarantee you, uh, practitioners right now are taking a shortcut, looking at ferritin, and it is completely uh, misrepresentative of what's going on in the totality of the iron recycling system. Yeah. And before we hop in, the last subject that I wanted to dive a little bit deeper into was you had mentioned some emotional releasing techniques. You had said the emotional freedom technique and a couple of other things on part one that are beyond yoga, beyond breath work, beyond journaling, which are great things to have in your toolbox. That's pretty much all that I've, I have and I use now. But I'd love to hear a little bit more about those emotional releasing techniques. Sure. So Jamie, how many years would you say you've been out of balance? I would say definitely noticeable in my early adolescence. So around the time I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's, I remember like falling asleep at school. So maybe eight to 12 years old. I don't know exactly. When when you've experienced being out of balance for that many years, you're going to start to believe that you're broken. There's something seriously wrong with my body. You may not have thought it quite that way, but now as a young adult, and you've been, been dealing with these issues for a long time, it's very understandable that you would have doubt about your body's ability to keep you in balance. And, I, and I've come against this, come across this, and the vast majority of the people I work with is, uh, and they run the gamut from little kids all the way up to people in their late 80s. But the thing is, when you're young and you're not quite right, you're more apt to say, there must be something wrong. It must be, it's a genetic problem, you know, and you start, you'll start start to lose faith in your body's natural ability to keep itself in balance. And very often what happens to people is we'll do what we think we're supposed to do. We'll, we'll talk to practitioners or we'll go to the internet or we'll talk to people that we trust and they'll tell us to do this, this, and this, and we find out that nothing changed. So then we start to doubt ourselves even more I must have done something wrong. And then the ultimate insult is people will think, begin to think they're being punished by God. I've had many people tell me that they feel like they, they must have done something wrong and this is my just rewards. I'm like, no, I, think it's, I, don't, think it, I don't think that's what it is. But, but people go there and a lot of people go there. One of my critical mentors was Rick Malter, who's a clinical psychologist. And as a psychologist, he's the one who really taught me how to interpret a hair test. He said, Moy, there are only two questions you can answer with a hair test. One, is this person under stress? And two, do the results of the hair test indicate whether they can mobilize energy to deal with that stress? Because that's really what we've got to do when when we're under stress. We've got to mobilize and respond. Either get out of the situation or change the situation to reduce the stress. I'm so grateful to have had that instruction, that repeated instruction, because everyone's under stress. I mean, everyone. And everyone went into hyperbolic stress back in 2020. 
when you're under stress like that, you begin to become fearful. It's a natural bodily reaction. You begin to doubt your ability to get out of the stress, and then you go into a state of fear. And this is very well chronicled in an article by Dr. Zaman Pira, Z-A-M-I-N-P-I-R-A, 2019, talking about how hypoxia gets created in a, in a state of fear and how that hypoxia can create cancer in humans. And so when we are in a state of fear, we go, <gasps> we, we start to gasp for air, especially if we get anxious. And I spell fear differently. It's F-E hyphen A-R. So then that word becomes iron attracts rust. And what people need to understand is that when you are in a state of fear, because you've been in chronic stress for a number of years and you doubted your ability to take care of yourself, you become a magnet for iron. And what's happening is in a state of chronic fear, adrenaline and cortisol get released chronically. Well, adrenaline is an uh, oxygen injector system and it's going to start to affect not just oxygen, but iron levels. And cortisol, when you're in a chronic state and cortisol is constantly being produced, it increases the synthesis of a protein called metallothionine four to five fold. That's an enormous change in metallothionine. And what does it do? Metallothionine binds up copper a thousand times stronger than it binds up zinc. I know someone who's two times as strong as I am, maybe three. You probably do too. But you don't know anyone who's a thousand times stronger. We can't even relate to it. And so this is a massive physiological change in our body. And why is copper so important? Because we need it to activate the oxygen, to release the energy, to respond to the stress. The, the whole purpose behind these emotional release techniques, emotional freedom technique, emotion code, body code. Uh, and then you've got EMDR. I think those are kind of the big three. What those modalities do is help the individual to release their fear. And here's the catch. The, the people who are drawn to these types of conversations, who are really trying to understand what happened, or high IQ. And what I've learned over the years is that people with high IQ have two genetic defects. We're control freaks and we love complexity. It's just the way we're wired. And people with high IQ, like your listeners, cannot do emotional release on their own because they're control freaks. They don't know how to let go. And doing it for yourself is too easy. That violates the second gene. I can't, I can't do anything easy. So I encourage people to work with a practitioner because it's more complicated. You're going to love that. And they will teach you how to let go. And it is absolutely life-changing when you do that. And releasing a fear is different than meditation is different than prayer, is different than yoga. 
And those are beautiful modalities. They're, they're central to our well-being. But we live in a, a, a time period now where there's hyperbolic stress. And people don't know how to let go of the fear that that chronic stress has created. And it's one of the cornerstones of our, of our protocol is that when people get stuck, they'll start the RCP and they'll start to feel better and then they kind of reach a plateau. There's two questions we'll ask right away. Have you, have you dumped your iron in a phlebotomy? And have you dumped your fear in a um, emotional release technique? And usually people have not done one or the other or both. And, the, and then suddenly there's a shift when they do, don't go in fact and do that. But, but the thing is, it's a very important part of the process to help people gain control of their situation because the fear can be immobilizing. And we try to pretend that it isn't. We try to be very sophisticated about, oh, I'm just fine. When in fact, we're not fine. I think it's important for people to surrender to the value that that emotional release can bring to their well-being. Let's move along now to a very, very big and important question. Should we be taking vitamin C and vitamin D? And how much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there's a, there's a whole chapter in my book, I think it's either chapter seven or chapter eight in my book about it. A lot of references, folks, if you want to get into the, the nitty gritty. The bottom line is ascorbic acid and synthetic vitamin D are not natural. I don't care how you twist it, how you refine it. People need to know that there's a difference between ascorbic acid and whole food vitamin C complex. The whole food complex has an engine and like a steering wheel and four wheels and a cover. And it's, it's like a car. It's very, really cool. And that engine is actually an enzyme. It's called tyrosinase, one of the most important copper enzymes in our body. And if you Google that, you'll see, oh, it's, it just, it's just for melanin, to, for hair color, skin color, and eye color. And if you believe that's all it does, I've got a, a used BMW I'd love to sell you because it's a lot more complicated than that. But they don't want us to know that. And I know I sound really conspiratorial. And what I've learned over the years is it's not a conspiracy if I can prove it. And I can prove it. The vitamin, the vitamin C is the cover of the car and no moving parts. And there's an, another enzyme that's important for people to know about called ascorbate oxidase. So we've got tyrosinase and ascorbate oxidase. Both of them are copper dependent. And ascorbate oxidase is really important for recycling the vitamin C molecule. It's, it's critically important as it relates to glucose metabolism because there are certain parts of our body, our, the retina of our eyes, our kidneys, and our nerves don't use insulin to put glucose into the cell. It relies on an ascorbate oxidase mechanism. And, uh, and if we had half a day, I'd walk you through what, what that's all about. But, but the key is those tissues are the ones where people get retinopathy, neuropathy, and nephropathy. Those are very serious conditions attached to diabetes because they don't have access to whole food vitamin C. We put premium emphasis on the whole food vitamin C because it's got all of the parts. And what people need to know about is how is ascorbic acid made? That's a good thing to know, right? 
And it turns out it's GMO corn mixed with sulfuric acid. And it's like no one in their right mind would want to be using that. What I think is even more entertaining is that there are about 150 different supplement companies that use, I mean, that sell ascorbic acid, but it's all made by one company in China. And all these companies say, well, my ascorbic acid is better than your ascorbic acid. And the average person doesn't know it's all coming from one plant. And I just think that's wicked. So the, the, the most important thing to know about ascorbic acid is that it has a relationship with the copper protein called ceruloplasmin. I think we probably talked about that in the first class or first, first talk. Basically, class. Class. Yeah, <laughs> I like calling it a class. I'm, just, I'm over I'm here taking school. notes, so. <laughs> I'm the school arm here, now class. Come on. Um, ascorbic acid, this, this was written up in 1948 when Holmberg and Laurel, two Swedish physiologists, were talking about their discovery of this copper protein, ceruloplasma. It's a really big deal. It's a monster protein. It's got 1,066 amino acids. Insulin's got 25. And there's eight coppers inside it. At least they're supposed to be. What Dr. Holmberg and Laurel indicated is that in the presence of ascorbic acid, the ceruloplasmin protein breaks down and releases the coppers into the bloodstream. That's not a good thing. Picture ceruloplasmin being a SUV, You've got eight passengers inside, and suddenly it goes through some ascorbic acid. The doors open up, and everyone's kicked out into the highway. That's not a good thing. That's a very dangerous thing. And what is in the literature is that suddenly the copper becomes unbound. That's a lie. Uh, it does become unbound from ceruloplasmin, but it is very swiftly bound up by transcuprine, albumin, or histidine. And that's in the literature. It's very well documented in the literature, but nobody knows about that part of the literature. And so ascorbic acid is, I think, uh, pure deception. And it's this has been going on since 1937. So that's the, that's the vitamin C side. The vitamin D is dastardly. Uh, the vitamin D stands for deception. The vitamin D stands for disinformation. And a lot of confusion about uh, its properties, people don't realize how corralled and manipulated our thinking has been by the system. Because they've told us about vitamin D, but they haven't told us about vitamin A. They've told us about iron, but they've never told us about copper. They've, they've told us about sugar, but they've never told us about fat. And on and on it goes. And so we are being uh, fed a narrative about how the body works that fits their preconceived model for what where they want to take people and how they want to basically hijack their their uh, metabolism and mother nature never intended that vitamin d would be taken in a synthetic form in isolation and away from retinol where you, the best forms of of vitamin d are with vitamin a and everyone has been told that vitamin d is faster than a speeding bullet more powerful than a locomotive. And that's not really true because it turns out that there's at least 10 different forms of vitamin D. Did, did you know that? That there's 10 different forms? Actually, it can be as high as 18 to 20 different forms of vitamin D. And we've been, yeah, it is a while. And we've been, we've been trained. We believe that if I take 
storage D, 25 hydroxy vitamin D. If I take that, it will always become 125. Everything's going to be fine. And I'm going to be strong like bull. And that actually what it turns out is it's a crocodile because that synthetic form can go at least 10 different directions, at least 10 different directions. And there's nothing controlling where it's going to go. So vitamin D, uh, it's more complicated than people realize. And uh, all of the conclusions about vitamin D, faster, stronger, taller, whatever, is based on articles based on correlation, not causation. So to understand that d distinction, do flies cause garbage? No. No. They're attracted to it. They're attracted to it. Correlation does not mean causation. That's one of the things like right. it, they burn into your brain. <laughs> That's right. And do firemen cause fires? No. Mm -mm. No, no. Same thing. They just happen to show up every time there's a fire. And what has happened is in the research, they've realized that everyone has low vitamin D. They've declared it low because they changed the reference range back in the 60s to the 80s. It was in the teens. And then Michael Hollick moved it up to 30 to 100 to make everyone appear like they're low, but they're measuring storage and they're silent on active. So one of my follow-up questions was, can you explain in a, in a simplified sense what the difference between storage D is and active D? Yeah, absolutely. This is not a vitamin we're talking about. This is actually a hormone. It's one of the most powerful hormones in the human body. And I would say that retinol in, in its hormone form, retinoic acids, there's, there's uh, three or four of them, are more powerful than hormone D. But every hormone, as soon as people hear hormone, they go, well, yeah, there's a storage and an active form. Everyone knows that. That's, that's well built into our cranium. Because when we get testing done of our hormones, we always get back the storage and the active. But they call it a vitamin. Why? Because it's a game of deception. The, the belief system is that once you take storage, storage D, and what, what creates that storage D is you take a precursor, it's, it's a form of cholesterol from our skin, under our skin, that gets modified, gets kissed by the sunlight, and that modified form of cholesterol goes to our liver to be kissed by another enzyme called 25-hydroxylase enzyme. Anything that ends in ASE is an enzyme. And that enzyme requires magnesium in the liver to create the storage form of the, um, of the substrate. Then, according to the narrative, it goes to the kidney and it gets kissed again by another enzyme called 1,25-hydroxylase. And it becomes active D. And, and that's... That's kind of like see Dick and Jane run. The truth of the matter is it's more like war and peace. A little bit more complicated. The, the reason why the storage number can often appear low is because people don't realize that, when, that that enzyme must have magnesium in the liver to do its job. Why, why is the magnesium MIA? Because there's not enough copper in your diet. It's causing iron to rise in your liver and when iron rises in the liver, it causes magnesium loss in the liver. And then the enzyme doesn't work. In, in that state where you have 
high iron and low copper, you have greater indication of inflammation, especially in the liver. I would argue probably in the spleen, probably in the kidneys, probably in the brain and elsewhere, but, but we're just focusing on the liver. And so the inflammation will be rising and in a state of inflammation, magnesium will be low, the enzyme will be low, or the activation of the enzyme will be low, and then the storage D will appear low. And they, what they've done is said, the low D caused the inflammation. We're back to correlation, not causation. The inflammation is correlated with low storage D. You could drink a bucket full of storage D and you will not correct the inflammation. And that's where people are completely misdirected. What people don't know is that there's a relationship between storage and active. The storage level should be around 21. It's 21 nanograms per deciliter. The active should be around 45 picograms per deciliter. It's a different unit of measurement. It's a thousand times smaller. But the number 45 is about two times 21. And so the active, which never gets measured, should be twice as high as the, as the storage. What happens is I've had clients have a storage of over 100 and their active is in the 70s. That's insanely out of balance. The body is, is violently reeling from the distortion that's happened because of focusing on one nutrient at the expense of others. Within the RCP, we encourage people to get real whole food vitamin C. A great form is formula IQ. Innate response would be another. There are a couple others, but those are two really good forms that have very high amounts of, uh, of vitamin C, whole food vitamin C. We encourage people to take cod liver oil. Again, the, the, the uh, Mercedes. Of I got mine after our last episode. I was like, okay, we're getting her. I love how you had it right <laughs> it there. <laughs> because I've been taking it, it's I put it in front of me, but I love it because it has the A, it has the D, it has all your like everything right. that you need it's in one, and it's a whole food, like more bioavailable. I've been taking notes morely. I hope you know that. Well, that's <laughs> it's been no, great. Oh, no, and the thing is that I think that's Rosita's, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's the Rolls Royce, and then a, a really high end uh, BMW's FIQ's uh, cod liver oil. And this, it's got the right balance, and they're just two really wonderful forms of these nutrients that people people want easy. When you're stressed out, you want easy, and people don't want to take the time to listen to, well, now, why should I buck the system? And I think that's why you're having these conversations, is you want to get down into the weeds of the truth to find out, why am I still not right. What's off? And what's off is you've been following too much, I would assume, the conventional narrative. And now you're getting a, a much deeper understanding of how the metabolism really works, how the immune system really works. And it relies on energy. The immune system's got to have energy. And if you don't have copper, you can't make energy. And so that's really central to the, the root cause protocol. The confusion around ascorbic acid and D only supplements is legendary. And a lot of people have suffered because of that. So you mentioned in your book somewhere, and it was probably in the CD chapter, 
about vitamin D blocking vitamin A's absorption. Right. Yeah. It, uh, in the book, um, what I was relying on, believe it or not, was a chicken study. There's only one study that, that talked about it. And it doesn't take, doesn't take me 100 studies. I'm, I'm basing it on the insight of uh, Fred Kumaro, who is a world-renowned lipidologist. And he told me a long time ago, don't ever take vitamin D alone. And when someone of that stature says to do something, I, I listen to what they say. Uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Jackie Solomon, who's down in Australia, she found uh, two more robust studies of humans proving that there is a blockage of A when you're taking D-only supplements. And people are just going to have to accept that. I, I don't have those committed to memory. And it's we're, we're flying into the face of the conventional narrative. Most people, 98 pe people out of 100, 98 want to do what they're told to do. Two people will buck the system and dig in and research, and that's who you're really appealing to. The average person is going like, oh, this guy's a nut job, let's move on, because everyone's telling them to take D. And people don't realize why they get kidney stones by taking D supplements. People don't realize why their copper goes kaflui because they're taking ascorbic acid. And, and then suddenly the practitioner is saying, well, we need to detox you of that copper, which is the most insane thing they can do. For the precious few that really want to take stock of the truth, that's what this conversation is about. So one of my questions I had, but I think that you've already answered it, was, you know, I was speaking to some friends about your book after I read it, and I was like, well, sh stop taking vitamin D. And they're like, well, I live up north. How do I get vitamin D during the winter? And then things like cod liver oil, as you guys explained, mm -hmm. that has right. a natural vitamin D. You would, would you call that whole food vitamin D? Yeah, it's a natural form, as natural as it's, as it's going to come. The other thing that people don't realize is that the liver stores D. And and it was Weston A. Price, I don't know whether you know that name, he's a famous physician uh, who studied nutrition back at the turn of the century. But he's the one that figured out that there's a cyclical pattern to storage D. What's important for people to understand is active D is always the same. It doesn't change. Body wants active D at a certain level. Storage fluctuates. And the way I characterize it is retinol is a light sensor. Vitamin A is a light sensor. Vitamin D is a light filter. There's a difference between a sensor and a filter. Sensor says, ooh, we got photons. What are we going to do with them? Filter says, let's block the light. And when you look at the articles about vitamin D, you'll always see a picture of the sun wearing sunglasses. And vitamin D is sunglasses inside your body. And people are like, they're reeling right now thinking, wait, no, wait. No, it's the sunshine supplement, right? No, it's not. It's sun, sunglasses. The storage form of it, when is it highest? It's highest in the summer and lowest in the winter. Oh, light's different in the summer than it is in the winter. There's more sunlight in the summer. There's less sunlight in the winter. The light is also different. There's more red light in the summer. There's more blue light in the winter. And it turns out that the storage D is responding to that. The reason why storage D is higher in the summer is because the body knows it needs to block all that light. 
And the reason why it's lower in the winter is because the body knows it shouldn't be blocking the light. And it's really responding to the red light versus the blue light, not just the amount of light. And that's completely lost on people like Michael Hollick and all the people who are telling us to drink bucketfuls of vitamin D during COVID. And it's just, it's a complete lapse in understanding the physiological properties of that nutrient. I had another note here. Vitamin C, uh, whole food vitamin C supports and feeds the adrenals. And I, at one point, I had mentioned in the past episode, I read uh, Isabella Wendt's Adrenal Transformation Protocol. I read that vitamin C supports your adrenals. And so I went out and bought ascorbic acid. I was taking a thousand milligrams every day, not knowing what that was doing. And then I had a little quote from your book and it was saying intensely acidic pH of ascorbic acid blocks copper absorption, kills ceruloplasmin and increases the absorption and not the mobilization of iron in cells and tissues. And I thought that was really impactful. Well, it is. And again, most people won't take the time to piece all that together. But there are, you know, hundreds of scientists who've been studying these properties and they, they publish and it's just, it takes time to read them, reflect on them, try to synthesize them. And that's really what the book is. It's just, it's a distillation of all of that research. The information that I'm sharing, it's not my opinion. It's a compendium of research. I'm sharing what I've learned and I have passion about it. But it's, it's not, you know, I just think I'm going to cut against the grain and tell people to stop taking C and D. It's like, no, there's, there's a lot of hours of research. And do you think, you think it was easy back in 2010 when I started telling people to stop taking vitamin D? Do you know the, the slings of arrows that I endured for now a lot of years, 14 years? I mean, and I, now I, I kind of laugh at it, but it's just those early years were really uncomfortable because people were convinced I was a nut job until I, we changed the rules on the mag, magnesium advocacy group. You could not talk about vitamin D unless you presented the results of a storage D and active D and proved to us that your body was in balance. And when person after person after person after person started to post it and they realized that their A was just completely cattywampus with the D, <sighs> everything settled down when people realized, oh my gosh, maybe there's more to the story. And so I've, I've endured uh, many, many, many conversations. I've, I've gone toe to toe with world renowned practitioners and I walk away with my head high knowing that I'm right. And, and I had one very high profile functional doctor after 10 minutes say, Morley, would you do me a favor? I said, yeah, what? what's that? He said, would you summarize what you said so I can share it with my colleagues? I give him high marks because he was curious. He thought I was wrong. He learned he was wrong. And he was open to sharing the truth. That's what we need more of is people who are willing to cut against the grain of the narrative and begin to reveal what's really going on. And if, and if we've learned nothing else from 2020, there is a narrative. There absolutely is a narrative and there's more to the story and we've got to be discerning and aware and get on top of it. Yeah, you're a disruptor. And I will say that it's really impressive how you cite these studies off the top of your head 
Um, I mean, it, it shows that hours and hours of research goes into this and you've talked about it and you know it and you've studied it. But I just wanted to point that out, that it was really impressive that with every point that you make, well, you can you. pretty much back had, it up. When I, when I uh, did a talk here in Chapel Hill many years ago, it was actually July of 2019 and I, like a two hour presentation. I'm citing this reference, that reference. <laughs> Someone raised their hand and said, well, I don't think there's any evidence of dementia in your future. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I know even all the people, like the names that you're mentioning stuff, I'm like over here writing them no, down. No, I know. And then you're notes, able to but... spell them, which is really good so that people can actually look it up because a lot of times it's tough when you just hear a word, especially of a scientist or a last name. You're like, what was that? Yeah. It drives me crazy when people make references and they don't tell you how to find it in the, in the literature. Yeah. So. May I say... If you were going to take one thing away from your stops and starts, that it would be stop synthetic vitamin C, which is ascorbic acid, and start whole food vitamin C. If I were going to be stranded on an island and I could only take one supplement with me, I'd probably take Recuperate, which has, it's got beef liver in it, it's got spirulina, it's got boron, it's got a form of copper. You're going to get the B vitamins that you're going to get in the beef liver, you're going to get the, it's just, it's a nutrient packed supplement that I think uh, it's almost like a one a day. If you're, if you're going to just say, well, I'm only going to take one thing. That'd be the one thing to take. Vitamin C is incredibly important, but I don't think it has the reach or the impact of, of the recuperate. So that would be my, my, um, my spin on that. Shifting gears, I want to talk about silica and diatomaceous earth. Did I pronounce that right? You did. Very good. <laughs> Thank you. When I read about it in your book, it was it was a little bit brief, and I want to hear a little bit more about it. I want to know how it works. And are there, those are two separate supplements, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it seems like an all-in-one detox. Silica is a it's like a utility player. It, it's a, it's an amazing nutrient. A lot of people get it through horsetail. That's another form that they'll they'll use. And it just, it seems to have this magical ability to say, what do you need? And I can go there. I've never really studied it in in depth. Um, the reason why I got it into the uh, protocol is that it was important for making ceruloplasmin. So it's like, let's make sure we get some some uh, silica as part of our approach. And then the uh, the whole issue with diatomaceous earth Diatoms are just these ancient life forms, and they look like little buzz saws. And everyone thinks, "Oh, that's going to chew up my my gut, and that's what's going to get rid of rid of the uh, the parasites. It's going to be cut in half." And it doesn't work that way. Diatoms are they dehydrate. That property is what affects the parasites. Uh, they're very effective, or diet, a diatomaceous earth is very effective in that regard. What you've got to do is you, you talk about low and slow. <laughs> yeah. uh, you want to start with like a sixteenth of a teaspoon, and and be very careful not to go too fast, because uh, I've had people that just dive in, and then they really regret the die off that comes from diving in. Just know that it works. It's a it's been used for a long time, and people just need to know that there are these natural mechanisms to help keep the body in balance. And all we try to do is tap into what are the what are the, the most natural or the most food-based approaches that we can take to support our body's desire to get back into balance. Yeah. 
Another point from your book that I wanted to ask you about was iodine supplementation because having thyroid problems, I've you know seen this topic come up. It's a controversial topic. What research supports iodine supplementation and deficiency in the U.S.? Because it doesn't seem from what I had seen, and obviously I've done very little research, but the deficiency seems to be a problem more in other countries and that not as much of a problem in the U.S., but then your book kind of touched on it being an issue in the U.S. So I was curious your thoughts. The issue, the most important thing for people to understand is this bow tie does not run the body. That's just more narrative. The thyroid does not run the body. It responds to copper status and that's the work of Jens Mitag, M-I-T-T-A-G, world-renowned endocrinologist. And in 2012, he wrote a very important article about the relationship between thyroid function and copper status. Now, the difference is in Europe, they have endocrinologists. And here in the States, we have endocriminologists. They're very different. The thyroid has been hijacked by modern medicine. And everyone knows what their TSH level is, but no one knows what their TRH level is. And TRH regulates TSH. And TRH is coming out of the hypothalamus. And if it's not active, it can't communicate very well with TSH, which is coming out of the pituitary. Now, we haven't talked about the PAM enzyme. It's probably one of the most important enzymes in the human body that nobody knows anything about. And the PAM stands for peptidoglycine alpha-amidating monooxygenase. It's 35 letters long. And your doctor doesn't know what it is, but it's what runs all of the neuropeptides in the body. Turns out our hormones are like cell phones. They've got to be turned on. And the PAM is the only enzyme that turns them on. And there's about 4,700 of them that need to be turned on. Everyone fixates on the thyroid. Oh, it's, oh my God, it's what activates the mitochondria. No, it doesn't. That's, that's another lie. There's a difference between T4 and T3. Do you, do you know what the T is referring to? I should know this. Uh... Thyroid stimulating hormone is TSH. Right. Well, the T in T4 and T3 is tyrosine. Oh, tyrosine. Okay. Amino acid. And T4 has four iodine, and T3 has three iodine. And the, the, the bulk of your T3, where would you guess it's made? Is it made in the thyroid or is it made in the liver? Liver? Yeah, that's right. 90% of it's made in the liver. If liver is low in copper and high in iron, guess what happens? The triiodinase enzyme doesn't work right. And it can't cleave off that, that, that iodine to turn T4 into T3. So then T4 is going to look high, T3 is going to look low, and the doctor is going to freak out and say, you need more medication. Because they don't understand how the liver works. The antibodies and all of the confusion around that, that's all about the spleen. It has nothing to do with the thyroid. 
you know, I'm sure right now there's a whole bunch of people listening to this that are in free fall because they've, they've read every article on the thyroid and they know, and they've gone to every expert and they know what they don't know because they don't know about copper. Jen's my tag knows about copper. And here's how it really works. T3, all hormones, every one of them, is a signaling peptide. It's got information that it wants to send back. And T3 hangs out at complex four of the mitochondria. There's 40 quadrillion of them in our body. And it's an oxygen sensor. And it's sensing whether the oxygen is being burned properly at complex four because O2 needs to be activated and turned into two molecules of water, 2H2O. And when that's going well, T3 is happy, no issue. When it's not going well, T3 sends a signal back to the liver. Again, thank you, Dr. Mytag, for figuring this out. Sends a signal back to the liver. And guess what the signal is? We need more ceruloplasmin to get more copper to the liver so we can stay energetic and stay on top of what's going on. And this idea that T3 is a spark plug for the, for the mitochondria, that's an insult to our intellect and our integrity. And it doesn't work that way at all. It is a signaling peptide and it's relaying how well mineralized are the mitochondria and do they need more copper? And it turns out that ceruloplasmin, this copper protein that has probably, you know, a dozen or more functions, some would say it's as much as 20 different functions. But one of those functions is it carries copper to the mitochondria. It's the payload. And so it has eight coppers inside the protein and it can carry up to 10 coppers on the outside of the protein. That's a big deal that no one talks about. And again, it's in the literature. People just need to know that, again, most of their understanding about the thyroid is based on C. Dick and Jane Run, not on War and Peace. It, it's, it isn't that complicated. It takes longer to read War and Peace. It's a, it's a more robust read, right? But, but it's still letters and words into paragraphs, but it's just more of them. Well, there's more knowledge that people need to have to understand how their body really works. And the beauty of copper, beauty of bioavailable copper, is it slices through all of that confusion and says, let's calm things down. Let's cut to the chase. Let's make sure we're able to make energy. Let's make sure we're able to get these enzymes to work properly. And what happens in the liver is when iron's building, it creates rust, and that enzyme just doesn't work effectively. And people are told that, oh, it's a, it's a selenoenzyme, Morley, don't you know? Well, that selenoenzyme, just like the glutathione selenoenzyme, neither one of those selenoenzymes works in copper deficiency. Again, it's in the literature, but no one has command of that. And so it's just, you know, there, the idea that, that iodine is, is the problem, well, it, Here's where it gets really fascinating. And I always get it backwards. I don't know whether iodine becomes iodide 
or iodide becomes iodine. I'm embarrassed. I can never remember which is which. But it turns out that the conversion requires whole food vitamin C. And so we're back to the importance of whole food vitamin C so we can keep the iodine toggled right. And I think it's iodide becomes iodine because what they sell us is iodine. Post-conversion of iodide to iodine. Why? Because they know you don't have the vitamin C in your diet and in your body to do it. They sell us iodine. So just a, it's a very different way of, of uh, thinking about it. Okay. I have a few questions. We're going to shift gears, but we're going to come back to copper eventually. But I wanted to talk about anti-aging because both Jamie and I have been using the synthetic vitamin A tretinoin on our face to prevent wrinkles and so forth. I wanted to get your take on that if you are familiar with it, but also too, are there alternatives for like topical anti-aging? Yeah, there is. Um, Famous copper researcher, Lauren, L-O-R-E-N, it's a guy, Lauren Pickart, P-I-C-K-A-R-T, PhD, world-renowned copper expert who discovered a copper peptide called GHK copper peptide. G for glycine, H for histidine, K for lysine, GHK, naturally occurring in our body. And many years ago, he wanted to develop a copper supplement for folks. And the FDA said, no, you're not going to do that. Dr. Pickard's a very clever guy. And he said, well, what if I put it in a cream? And they just said, sure, whatever. You know, we, they assumed it wasn't going to work. Works great. And the name of his company is called ReverseSkinAging.com. It comes in a little jar. It's not cheap. It's like $185 to buy that cream. But it is amazing. And what's important for people who are using the form of vitamin A that you're using which which I would say is metabolic poison. <laughs> no, I, I, I kind of knew this was coming. Yeah. I just started I using it. <laughs> Sorry. Some of my sickest clients are people who took Accutane and absolutely devastated by the medication. But, but the thing is, Dr. Pickert has dozens of articles on his website demonstrating how important copper is to anti-aging, not just on the skin, but elsewhere. And so the phrase that I use is iron causes aging. It's a reason why I look older than you two, because I'm 50 years older than you two, or at least 45 years older. And I've got a lot more iron in my frame than you have, right? But the other side of the phrase is copper causes longevity. In the plant world, where is copper found in plant growth? Always with the new growth. Where's the highest concentration of copper in a human? When it's a baby, in a youngster. And as we age, what happens is copper's going down, iron's going up, and they crisscross about the age of 40. And that's why we need to supplement. That's why we need the root cause protocol to make sure that we're taking the nutrients that are going to allow us to make energy 
but especially to allow us to have bioavailable copper. So I would really encourage you to rethink that skin cream that you're using, whatever it is you're using, because that synthetic form of, of A is not retinol as Mother Nature designed it. And what Dr. Pickard has put together is an amazing product that helps people. And it's not just it's, uh, skin deep. It will go into the tissue. Oh. And so it's very, very beneficial from that standpoint. So what happens when you take this synthetic vitamin A topically? Like what, what does that do? <laughs> Mayhem? <laughs> well, what I know from the research about Accutane, um, it's a... It's a 13 cis retinoic acid, as I understand it. It's a, it's a, it's actually a hormone. It isn't. Uh, it, you're not. You're not putting beta carotene on your face. You're putting hormone on your face. That that hormone has a very specific job in the body to load copper into copper pump. There are enzymes called copper pumps, ATP7A and ATP7B, and what. Accutane does, I'm, I'm not sure about the form that you're using, but the Accutane, what it does is it hyper accelerates the loading of copper. It's depleting copper in the tissue to make the ceruloplasmin, which is basically going to de deplete the body of, of that substance, which is really bad. And it's, it's especially targeting uh, the liver in that process. So I don't know the, the exact properties of the skin form. But what I do know is that there's always more than one way to skin a cat. When you go to the, the research around synthetic A, they never tell you about copper. They never tell you what vitamin A's real job is, is to make copper bioavailable. They don't tell you that, oh yeah, it's copper enzymes that are going to keep you vital and young. They don't tell you that. So I, I think there's a lot of uh, disinformation out there about these anti-aging creams. And I would just encourage people to dig a little deeper and, and try the reverse skin aging. That is so fascinating. Well, I'll definitely be rethinking my topical synthetic vitamin A and look into other options. But thank you for sharing your, your two cents sure. on that. Um, I also wanted to talk about copper and go back to that. You talk a lot about bioavailable copper, non-bioavailable copper. My sister who struggled with really high amounts of copper for years, I'm assuming non-bioavailable copper. How does one reduce non-bioavailable copper in their body. I mean, I think we've talked about how to get it in, but the good copper, but how do we get rid of the, you know, copper we've been exposed to, whether it's through copper piping or other ways that you do get non-bioavailable copper? Copper is kind of like a horse. One is a horse of most value to a farmer. When it's attached to a plow or a wagon or a cart or something, <clears throat> that's the the Amish culture. They rely on horses. What happens if the horse gets away, gets, breaks away from the, the team? What, what do they do? Do they shoot the horse or do they try to lasso it and bring it back into the fold? Of course they lasso it. They don't shoot it. And what, what do conventional practitioners do? They shoot copper all the time. Well, let me give you some of this EDTA. We're going to bulldoze out everything, including copper, and leave you high and dry. And guess what EDTA leaves behind? Iron. 
no copper to regulate it. The, the, the way to lasso the copper that's bound to histidine, bound to albumin, bound to transcuprine, is to take whole food vitamin C. And that tyrosinase will put the copper back to work and get it back into cerulealplasmin, which is where it belongs. Okay. That, that makes perfect sense. Thank you so much. Can I call my sister after this? <laughs> well, yeah. And so a uh, younger, older sister? Younger. Okay. So she got less of a mineral download than you got. Mm-hmm. Her sister and I share a lot of common health issues. Um, Hashimoto's, um, what else? A copper. Fit, chronic fatigue. You guys kind of both have hair loss. Hair loss. It, it's weird. We're, it, well, it's not that weird when you think about it, but it's funny to, to compare. We actually looked at her hair mineral analysis tests and it was similar to mine. Interesting. So what I would encourage both of you to do with, with you and your sister, so the three of you, let go of the labels. Stop using those labels. You, you are out of balance. When you use a label, you are telling yourself, I'm broken. When you say Hashimoto's, oh man, that's an autoimmune condition. And it's like, wow, my body's attacking itself. And it's like, don't go there. And fear attracts rust. Fear attracts rust or Mm -hmm. iron attracts rust. And the autoimmune is all flowing out of a spleen that's not happy. Mm -hmm. I'm telling you, I'm just beginning to, to piece this together. I think the dysfunction of the spleen is the greatest untold story in medicine. And it's, it's absolutely breathtaking in its importance. And um, we've been sold a bill of goods about all these different autoimmune conditions and, oh, you've got metabolic syndrome and, oh, you've got cancer and you've got this and that. It's like, wait a minute. Let's talk about my spleen. And... Most doctors say, well, you don't need a spleen. So they say, let's take it out. And they do it all the time, especially if you've had an accident. No, it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's almost disorienting uh, how out of touch with nature the, the practitioners are. So uh, I, I, I understand you've got these symptoms, but you've got to let go of the labels because they're tattooed right here. Every time you say it, you reinforce at your psychic level that I'm broken. And you, you've got to move beyond that. That's really important. And, and we're all guilty of it. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not uh, thumping you in the nose because I've done it too. No, it's a good call out. I mean, it's important to, to take that perspective. Like you said, it's, yeah. you get so used to like just labeling it, calling it that. It's almost like part of your identity. It doesn't, it, it doesn't Absolutely. need to be a part of your identity. It's not a part of you. No. Um, so I am completely receptive to that. And I think that it's something that I need to challenge myself to do more. Yeah. And the, and the mantra that I teach my clients is several times during the day, find a quiet spot. That's not always easy, especially if you've got kids. But, uh, or if you're working or whatever, it's, you've got to find a quiet spot and say the following three times each time you do it. I love being in balance. I love being in balance. I love being in balance. If you know anything about body-mind communication, the body believes everything it hears, especially when it's said in the present tense, said with emotion, but laced with gratitude. 
I love being in balance. And when the body hears that, guess what it does? It says, well, all right then, let's get there. We have to, we have to use these techniques to move us out of our state. And the other technique that I've used a lot with clients, have you ever done vision boards? Yes, definitely. I've done a little bit, but she's the pro. But I haven't done it in, in relation to health. Okay. Well, you you pick a an event that demonstrates that you are back. Some you're gonna take a trip, you're gonna do a climb a mountain, you're gonna do something really significant. And the minute you put it up on that board, then you start to populate it with pictures, words stories, affirmations that reinforce you fulfilling that objective. And what that vision board does, that four by six foot bulletin board does, it becomes a magnet to pull you into your future state. And the more you surrender to that magic, the faster it'll happen. Mm-hmm. I love that. That's amazing. Yeah. I've had many people do that. Yeah, on your label comment, I mean, I feel like that's fear talking, you know, I feel like using those labels and tying things in, it's like, that's, that's the fear inside of me, you know, like, that's the I haven't been well for so long. So I put a name on it, I put a label on it, I, I, I'm embodying that fear by, I'm bringing that fear into my life, I'm making that fear a reality by like, speaking it into existence over and over and over again. You and everybody else, Jamie. And, and so it's, the system relies on that. And the, what, what typically happens is people will go see their doctor. They don't feel well. And the doctor will just say, you know, it, it's all in your head. Don't just don't, don't, don't pay attention to it. People leave and then they come back maybe a month later and they say, could you do some testing? And the doctor says, okay, all right, I'll do some testing. So they get the results back. Well, the people don't realize that the testing is over here and the truth is over there. So the test results have no bearing on reality. And what does the doctor say? Say, I told you, it's all in your head. Then they leave with their tail between their legs and they come back about a month later. And I learned this from clients of mine who've done this, you know, many, many clients. And on the third visit, when they say, something's wrong, the doctor gets out the prescription pad and what does they write? An antidepressant. Yep. That, I've been there. It's happened yeah, to me. It's, I'm telling you, it's all in your head. Let me get mm-hmm. you a script for that. And that's when all the chaos starts. Because people don't know that Mother Nature has your back. People don't know that there is a blueprint. Blue is significant. It means copper is involved. People don't know what copper is. They don't know what the, the immune system is based on. It's based on energy. They don't know where energy is coming from. And so they're, they're literally in the dark and they are defenseless. And so they grab onto what everyone else is talking about and they'll grab onto the label to justify that I'm not crazy. I've got XYZ syndrome. That's, that's, my, that's my handle. And it's a very understandable pattern that, that takes place. But what the, what the purpose of the root cause protocol is, is get people beyond that label and get them to understand that cellular energy deficiency is the start of every symptom in the Merck manual. There's 32,000 of them. Every one of them starts with energy deficit. Well, why is 
Why is the mitochondria not doing its job? Let's start there and then work up from there. I love that. And I know we you talked a little bit about your clients and people you've seen, you know, over the past however many decades. What would you say is like the most profound deficiency you see across a lot of the people that come to you? Well, the biggest deficiency is people don't believe in their body's innate ability to heal itself. That is hands down. They, they lack faith in their body. I, I would not have believed it at first, but I think that from a nutrient standpoint, the, the biggest deficiencies would be magnesium, copper, and retinol. You, you can't make energy without magnesium and copper, and you can't make copper bioavailable without retinol. And these have been drummed out of the food system by design. Look at a label. Grab a label real quick, and you're going to go wow, wait, let me look at this label. Oh, it's got uh, it's got iron, it's got vitamin D, and yeah. Okay, there's no mention of copper. There's no mention of magnesium. There's no mention of uh, retinol. But they're, they will always have iron, calcium, and D. And, wow, and those, are, those are the three that will cause you the most problems. Wow. It's funny how that works. As we're wrapping this episode up, is there a story of a patient that you would like to share about how they came in, and not like obviously specifics, but how they came in with severe mineral imbalances, deficiencies, and how they recovered? Yeah. I, I'm going to, uh, actually what I'll do is I'm going to, it's actually two stories, but two guys, both 87 years old, and one was the grandfather of one of my students, and he was a professor. It takes a certain amount of IQ to be a professor, but his passion was telling jokes. He loved telling jokes. And as he got was getting older, he was forgetting the punchlines. The student decided to, she said, and he was he had fallen down, he broke his hip. He just he wasn't in he wasn't a happy camper. So she figured I have nothing to lose. So she worked it out with the nursing home to put her grandfather on the root cause protocol. And the, the director was very willing to accommodate and make the changes and what have you. 11 weeks after they started the, the protocol, the director of the nursing home called up Alicia and they said, uh, what's in this protocol? And she said, why? And they said, well, your, your grandfather, his name was Chester, Chester is telling his jokes again, and he's remembering the punchlines. 87 years old. The other client I would tell you about, his name is Paul. Paul's 87, and he's a big guy, but he was really struggling with his energy and in discomfort, wasn't sleeping right, things like that. And so I, I encouraged him. You know, again, 87, just like Chester, I said, why don't you try the protocol? You know, and, and I said, but what I want you to do is Use my copper supplement, recuperate, and, and just take one a day, just just as a little added boost. And he said, all right. He said, I'll do that. That sounds good. And um, Paul's a very hard-charging kind of guy. And so we had the, our consult at the end of the year. This was back in uh, 22. And then we were coming up for an interview in February of this year. And he sent me his blood work. And I looked at his his uh, copper. A, a good copper is around 100. 
he was over 200 in his copper. And his ceruloplasm was a little elevated, but wasn't wasn't too bad. And I mean, I was just like, oh my gosh, what what happened? What what what's going on here? You got a picture, Paul. You know, Paul is just full of vim and vigor, but he's 87 years old. And uh, I said, uh, hey, I I noticed uh, I got your blood work back, and I said I noticed your your copper was a little higher than than uh, normal. He goes, I know. He said, he's like, isn't that exciting? <laughs> and I said, I said, yeah. What, what, what did you do? I just wanted to know what happened. And he said, Well, Morley, you told me two things. Number one, you told me I was in charge. He said that meant the world to me. He said, the second thing, you told me to take one recuperate. Well, I decided to take six. Oh, he so went in full metal jacket. Balls <laughs> to the wall. Feet. So one capsule has two milligrams. So he was getting 12 milligrams of copper. And I've, I was like, wow, that's, that's quite a bolus. He goes, I know. I said, so what have you noticed, Paul, since you've done that? And the, the delight in his eye. He, again, he leans into the camera and he says, well, Morley, all my sleep issues, all my energy issues, all my memory issues and all my muscle aches, they're all gone. And he said, and that was with just eight weeks on your protocol. So I would never tell someone to take six capsules. They can do that on their own if they want. That's their, that's their choice. But here are two people, same vintage, who had pretty striking results by taking a very simple protocol and incorporating some very simple nutrients in it. And I think that part of the challenge we've got in, in today's era, especially post-COVID, is people's thinking is completely rewired. And they think it's going to take even more complicated things to get them right, when in fact, Mother Nature has our back. And so I would just, I would I share those examples because they're very graphic, they're very successful, but they're very simple very straightforward and what people just need to do is have faith there's a there's a video that you can find with me talking about three words cure faith and fear and it was i i narrated it at the beginning of covid and it was done done in a church and people get a kick out of the uh, the setting but but the, the point is i've turned the word faith into something that means more than just what we think it means. So faith has become an acronym for food and information that heals. And we are wildly deceived by the system. And we, we learned a thing or two in the last three or four years. And we just need to stay the course to, to dig deeper, listen a little closer, and make sure that we really understand what it takes to support our energy production, because that's what it's going to take to support our recovery and our immune system and just our day-to-day living. Absolutely. So hopefully that answers your question. I love that acronym. That like hit me. I feel I feel that on a soul level. It's really cool. I think people need things like that to, to see their way through these challenging times. 
Yeah, and it, it helps and it resonate. Food and our information is really, really important. And the, the food, the average food is lousy, and the average information is even worse. Mm-hmm. So we got to be careful. So a very important question, a very important last question is, how can people learn more about the Root Cause Protocol, and where can they buy your book? Yeah. So there's uh, online uh, face- Facebook and uh, Instagram communities. There's a there's an RCP community. Uh, we've got open enrollment for our RCP Institute, and so if you go to RCP one two three dot org, you can learn about how to enroll for the, the class. We have open enrollment between now and I guess it's like the end of December. Uh, but this is a particularly good time to get in because. It's, it's cheaper. It's an early bird registration. People can hear me on podcasts like this. Always enjoy these conversations. Uh, there's probably a couple hundred of them out on the internet, which is kind of a scary thought. Uh, I've, I've talked to many people who say, I've listened to everything you've said. I'm like, well, you, you need a life. You know that? And, uh, <laughs> but the, the, the book comes in physical, ebook, and audio. Uh, I narrated it myself, and you can get it on any online bookseller. You're not going to find it in a bookstore, but you can go to any online seller, and they'll they'll have it. There's a video called the RCP 101. You can get that on the RCP site. And then for the the, uh, precious few that want to reach out to me, my email address is morleyrobbins, first and last name at Gmail, and my cell phone is 847-922-922. Eight zero six one, and I, I never worry about giving out my phone number, even though the the, pe- the host on the other side is like, "You do, you just <laughs> that's me right now." Yeah, yeah. I'm like, "Sure." <laughs> I do it all the time, and people are very very measured about reaching out to me. But the people who need to talk to me have my number, so I'm glad to have that conversation. Wow. That is, well, thank you. It's been so, such a blast having you. We're going to shift gears into our rapid fire before we say goodbyes, just so we can get to know you more on a personal level. So what is something you're currently reading or all-time favorite book? Two, two all-time favorite books. Um, the Magus, which is a, a wonderful book, I think by John Fowles. Uh, it's, it's amazing, um, kind of like a whodunit book. And uh, probably the best book, I didn't actually read it. Dr. Liz narrated it to me. But the book was The Untold Story of Milk by Ron Schmid. He's a naturopath. It's probably one of the best written books I've ever listened to. <laughs> but it's, um, it really explains where society went wrong with its diet. And it, it, it revolves around the pasteurization of milk and we've never been the same since. So the mages for just pure entertainment and uh, the untold story of milk. Oh, I'm going to have to check those out. Those sound awesome. Okay. So what is one thing that always has to be in your fridge? Butter, bacon, uh, heavy cream. Healthy fats. What's that? Healthy Healthy fats. fats. Yeah. Now I'm a, I'm a, a type O positive. And I'm miserable if I don't have my purine proteins and my, my healthy fats. That's awesome. I have a lot of O positive blood type people in my life. So I can, I'll, I'll send them the message. They need to incorporate that into their diet. 
Um, what is, do you have a favorite brand in term, whether it's cleaning brands, personal care products, supplement line, is there like a, a favorite brand that you have? Well, for cleaning products, I would use Melaleuca. It's an amazing company, very thoughtful about the design of their ingredients and very user-friendly and, and earth-friendly. I've worked with a lot of different uh, supplement companies, but the one that really captures my imagination now is Formula IQ. They're the ones that make my recuperate. And I think they've done a, a marvelous job of aligning the, the principles of the RCP with some very excellent supplements. But there are other, you know, Jigsaw has good com good uh, supplements. Uh, Smidge, another really good company uh, that, that I've worked with. But I, I think uh, Melaleuca and FIQ would be the two that would stand out for me right now. And is there, I know we talked about a few, uh, we kind of touched on this topic, but are there any mottos that you live by? <laughs> How much time do we have? <laughs> uh, I, I have a bunch of them, but I made a, I made a solemn vow to integrity in my early thirties. And I'm not perfect. I don't walk on water. I, I tease people. I, well, I wear waterproof shoes, but I don't walk on water. But I try to be really careful about finding the truth and bringing it forward. So that that's a, a cornerstone of my life is being devoted to uh, integrity. And I, I guess a phrase that I learned uh, many, many years ago is the phrase, good, better, best, never let it rest until your good is better and your better best. And then the last phrase that will probably be on my tombstone is misled and misfed. And as a society, that's what happened. We were misled because we had missing information. And we were grossly misled about what, was, what the truth was. And then that led to us being misfed both information and food. We have been bamboozled by the system. And what I'm trying to do is just help people wake up and realize there's more to the story and teach people to learn to ask better questions and to demand better answers. Don't let your practitioner off the hook. Don't let them give you some pablum from the internet. Ask to see the article. Ask to see the metabolic pathway. Ask them to prove that they're right about vitamin D or ascorbic acid, or this or that, whatever the whatever the, the potion is that they're pushing, ask them to prove that it's going to work in your body. And then it's going to make more energy. I can back up mine, but most practitioners can't do that. So that's an important rule of thumb for people to use. Wow. I love all of those. And it seems like you've really aligned with your purpose here in this life of educating and disrupting and speaking up. And I, I have so much love for the fact that you, even though you probably look crazy sometimes back in, you know, 10, 20 years ago, it's great that you really stuck with that integrity and, and continued to get through it. Well, many years ago, my, my roommate from college, when I shared some very sensitive information, he said, Morley, you do lead an examined life. And that was the highest praise he could have given me. Because I, I was facing a, a crisis and I had to confront it, and um, I. It's not been an easy life. I can tell you that, but I I'm proud of what I've done. I've made mistakes. I've made major blunders, 
but that's part of the journey. We're here to learn from our mistakes. And uh, if I can do anything to help people to ease their pain, uh, I'm delighted because it, there's a lot of suffering out there, an amazing amount of suffering because people don't know the missing information. And so that's really what I commit myself to is wherever possible, trying to share that and, and make it so that people can walk away and say, okay, now I get it. You know, and, and that, that's really what drives me. Totally. And making them feel more empowered in their decisions and that's just it. all of that going yeah. forward. The RCP was designed to democratize healing. We should not need an ologist for every part of our body. We were designed to be in balance. Two more questions. We have started a new tradition on our show where our last guest, which in this case is Carly, she has a question for you. Her question is, when was the last time you were selfish and did something purely for yourself? Oh, wow. <laughs> Boy, that's a, that's a tough question. Purely selfish. Well, it was um, probably this summer we went and visited uh, my two oldest kids who live in the Boston area. And it was, you know, all of, of Dr. Liz's families in Chicago or down in Louisiana. And this was, this was all morally. And I mean, she's, she's a wonderful sport. I, I love her kids. She loves my kids. But uh, that was probably the, the last uh, immersion of what Morley wanted to do. And so that was back in July. And so we got to see my oldest son who just bought a farm outside of, of Boston and my daughter, they, they have two kids. And then my daughter, uh, Lizzie, has uh, three kids, two girls and a boy. And they're down in uh, Milton, uh, Massachusetts. And really had, had wonderful visits with them. It was really fun. It was, it's it great that they're so close to each other too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's awesome. And then what question do you have for our next guest? What was it that you learned recently that you wish you had known at the outset of your studies? Yeah. And mine, just, just to answer the question, I wish I'd known about the spleen 10 years ago. Morley, thank you so much for joining us today and for coming back for a part two. You have so much incredible information. I know Jamie and I were both so excited to go from reading your book, learning about the root cause protocol, and then actually being able to talk to you in person. So really appreciate your time and hopefully we'll have you back for uh, an episode later in the show. Well, thank you. Pre really appreciate being here. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you for tuning into this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you missed the first part of this two-part series, feel free to go back and check out episode seven with Morley Robbins. And if you want to learn more about the root cause protocol, be sure to check out the episode description. We'll have all the links down there. See you next time.